One of the reasons why we struggle so deeply with issues of our life is why we ask, God, I don't know what to do. I've got a situation I don't know what to do. Our prayers sound like that very often. And one of the reasons that we pray that so often is because we don't understand the, the deep principles of truth that God has shown us that we ought to be able to draw from so that we find those answers in the truth that God has already revealed. So one of the things I set out to do on Sunday night was to teach some of those deep principles, some of those things that we can draw from, no matter what the question is that may come up in our future. Instead of saying, God, I don't know what to do, and crying out you know, in desperation, we have an ability to, get, to go to that which God has already shown us and let it come as a well to us and rise up in us so that the answers are, that he's given are already there so that we don't have those moments of fear, uncertainty, doubt, question, whatever it happens to be. Because we're drawing from a well that's deep and rich and that we've already drank from, that we know what's there, and we can go to it. So we need to know these deeper things of God. So last week started with this question of creation, of the disconnect between the way the Bible opens. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this disconnect for me, because I would believe that any world that God created out of his nature, out of his goodness, out of who he is, that world would have had to look like him. No different than what we create is a direct representation of what's in our hearts and, and what we do. I, I don't think it should be uncertain or a question. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What did those heavens and earth look like? They look like him. So there's always been a disconnect for me in the first verse. It says, and that earth was dark, void, and without form. And I have shared with you repeatedly that that word was in that verse. When you look it up, yes, it can mean was, but it also equally can mean became. So the earth became dark, void, and formless. So it at least opened a possibility that I could question, ask God something, because it was born... In this question of God, why are we here? What is the whole story about? And I no longer could accept the vacation Bible school answer that we were here to have fellowship with God. That wasn't enough for me. It wasn't robust enough to answer what does story, even written in the cosmos, look like. All of it to have fellowship with God, the answer just wouldn't settle with me. So it be, this question began, Lord, why are we here? And I took you to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, where the scripture says, the purpose of the church is to show to those powers and principalities that I believe are the same powers and principalities mentioned in Ephesians 6 of darkness, to show that those powers and principalities, the manifold wisdom of God, to show those powers and principalities the very dynamic of God's wisdom of his goodness, of his grace, of his power, of his love, to show by the church this unique purpose. And suddenly again, it starts becoming more robust. That we weren't here to have fellowship with God. We were here to make a pronouncement, to, to let our voices become the trumpet that announced to those powers and principalities the very God that we worship and the God who created us. Now that began to penetrate with me and it began to be robust enough to begin to answer some of these questions, but it didn't solve the disconnect between those verses. In the beginning, God created an earth and it was dark and void and formless. 
And I showed you in a couple of places in the book of Jeremiah where dealing with the sin of Israel, proclaiming it to the prophets. He's saying if, if you don't deal with the sin that is in your life, and we understand who's the origin of that sin, who brought it, who introduced it, who injected it into the reality of, this, of our story, we know his name, we know who he is. Don't want to give him any more glory than, I, than absolutely necessary. But here's this reality. He says, if you don't deal with the sin, the outcome is going to be dark, void, and formless. The very same words in Jeremiah, years and years after the creation, it says the impact is the same. So with the possibility that that Hebrew word is the word became, it created the possibility for me that God had created an earth and then there was an event there was something that caused the earth to become dark and void and formless. And I went to, with you and talked to you about Ezekiel and Isaiah, where this being, the, the most beautiful angel that God had ever created, Lucifer, had rebelled and decided that he wanted to be as God and, and to rise to the throne of God. And that the outcome of, of that rebellion was that God cast him, our English word was the word ground, the Hebrew word, I, I think I might have misspelled it, but it's E-R-T-S or E-R-T-Z. And we know by the cognate what it has meant. He cast him to the earth. We know that reality. We have, we have all the evidential proof that that's true. I believe and I teach and I haven't hesitated to tell you that that is the event that caused the earth to be dark and void and formless. Because the next verse says, but the Spirit of God began to move on the face of the earth. And that the entire story is a story of redeeming the earth so that it can be returned and will be returned to its rightful owner. You begin to read some of these passages in Psalms and you see this moment when God the Most High hands this earth back to his son to rule and reign and to own and to stand on it as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and to rule for a thousand years and then establish the new heaven and the new earth as we read the scripture and understand it. So we begin to understand that there's a story, a, a huge story. But even as, I, as that resolved, something else formed in me. Because here's God, above all can't be touched. Please never, ever allow yourself to believe that Satan is the counterpart of God. If you want to even get close to that, you've got to make Satan the counterpart of Michael or of Gabriel. Because he's a created being. He is not God. He's not the antithesis of God. He's not equal to God. He's not as powerful as God. He's very limited. And we know it and he knows it. But here he is, this being. Upon that rebellion took a third of the angels with him. And we would ask ourselves, then why would God not create a being here, more powerful than Lucifer, to bring destruction on him and the rebellion? Because that would certainly show him to be powerful. God is also just. Guilt has got to be established. Punishment assessed. This has to unfold. And it's unfolding even now. So the great mystery was this. What happened in the creation that really made it stand out was not that God separated the, the light and the dark or God separated the water and the land. It's as unique as that was and showed him powerful. The uniqueness of the creation, as it spoke in Genesis chapter 1, is the fact that he created man in his own image. I don't believe that had ever happened before. 
I don't believe that man had ever held within him the capacity that you and I have in the creation that God established in Genesis chapter 1 when he said, let us make man in our image. I believe that was the first time that had ever been spoken from the mouth of God. I don't believe man had ever held that capacity before. I think that's the uniqueness of the creation. So here's this strange plan that God, warring against Lucifer, would create a being that physically, we're pretty weak compared to an angel. I think physically, you know, we might be at a significant disadvantage. Even our soul, our mind and our emotions, we understand in this life are pretty fragile. But the uniqueness of us was that, there was, that we had a spirit that died when sin came, but upon the reconciliation that Jesus Christ brought by his blood and sacrifice, created in us the opportunity so that this God could fit well into that spirit. So what equips me to fight against the powers and principalities, which it says in in Ephesians chapter 6, we do. We fight not against flesh and blood. I don't fight against you. If I do, something's way off track. But I fight against powers and principalities. That's our purpose. I'm here for a war. I'm a warrior. Designed, as I said, you know, when the gates of hell can't prevail against it. It's when, when, when Levi understands the will of God for his life and the identity God has spoken. And I do, and we stand arm in arm. And we stand there with Karen. We stand there with Johnny. We stand there with Jackie. And we move as an army against the gates of hell. And it says the gates of hell can't prevail against us. Moving. But what equips us? What equipped Jesus to do what he did for three and a half years was the reality of the Holy Spirit coming to take up residence in us. So what's the next principle that I want us to go to? I want us to understand a little bit. I'll be very honest. This is personal testimony. This is some of the hardest stuff I teach because it stretches me in every direction that I can possibly be stretched. To try to express to you what it means, what's it like, and what's the purpose of the indwelling reality of the Holy Spirit. We kind of begin conceptually with this. It took a person, the sacrifice of a person, the blood of a person. Remember, why did Jesus not have an earthly father? This is important. Because he had to be born alive. You and I are born dead. It was passed to us by our fathers. That curse of death was passed to us, and every one of us that are sitting here today are sitting under this reality of death. Jesus, not having an earthly father, but being the fathered by the Holy Spirit with Mary, was the only person ever born alive because it was going to require life to be sacrificed for death. You couldn't offer death for death. You had to offer someone who was alive eternally and completely, fully, born alive, who could then be sacrificed and offered for the reality of sin and death. Took a person to establish the, the repentance and the righteousness that would clean out this box and make us capable of holding the Holy Spirit. If it took a person to get us to that place, to bring that about, to cover us with that blood, to deal with our sin... Why would we think then that somehow it would not take a person to walk out this journey with God? It took a person to start it. It takes a person to walk it. Who is that person? It's the Holy Spirit. Change the game. Change the story. 
the reality of what it would be like for a living God to live in this human body. I don't try every day to be like Christ, except for the fact that Jesus every day trusted the Holy Spirit and the witness of the Spirit, the reality of the Spirit in him, to be able to minister for the next three and a half years as he did. I want to talk to you a little bit about this. I'm going first to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning with verse 8. For to one is given, how? By the Spirit, the word of wisdom. To another, the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, the gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, diverse kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But all these work that one and the self-same Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. For as the body is one and has many members, all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, have all been made to drink into one Spirit, for the body is not one member, but many. So we understand, powerfully introduced, to the reality of what the Spirit does. But there's within this truth, this reality that we have to know. The term that we hear, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is one of those that echo through denominations and cause hope in some and tremendous trepidation in others. Because it is not understood and it is not truly known about. But we begin to hear, see glimpses of it. And one of the things that we can gain from this scripture in particular is that when you and I trust Jesus Christ, the sacrifice, put our belief and hope in him as the person of salvation, that he actually did for us and appropriated to us salvation that we can now receive. When we understand that, when that becomes real, one of the things that the Holy Spirit does in that moment is he baptizes us, immerses us, dips us, or plunges us into the body of Christ, so that you and I will never stand as an island. There's never, there's not a single person here under the reality of truth of our faith in Jesus Christ and our trust in God, the reality of the Holy Spirit that can say, I stand alone in my relationship with God. Though it's personal and I have personal accountability, he so sewed us together so that the unity would be the evidence of his power, the unity would be the evidence of his glory and not the single individual. He made us to march together, arm in arm, under one plan, under one will. And the way that that's revealed, the way it's set in motion, is that he baptizes, immerses us into the body of Christ. One baptism for every one of us belonging to one body. I'm at this point in my life where it's time to tear down the denominational signs off of buildings because we know who did it, and it was not God. You know, Jeremy shared, he had... Danny had been on the plane a long time, and they were standing in, in the back, and another guy there, and he said, kind of tell that he was a believer in Jesus Christ, and so Jeremy started this conversation. He said, well, you know, I'm a Christian, and the, and the guy turned to Jeremy and said, well, what kind of Christian are you? What was he searching for? He was wanting to know what denomination. And Jeremy said he was so glad when it, that question stumped him, and he didn't answer it. I love the fact that there was no answer for that question. 
Because I want people to know I'm a Christian. I put my faith in Jesus Christ. That's who I am. And sometimes even when people say I'm non-denominational, non-denominational has almost become a religion. It's almost become a denomination. Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 22. But the scripture hath concluded all are all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the flesh, which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster, for you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized, notice these words, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have been have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither bond nor free, there's neither male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Here's this reality of tying the story. It is a complete story. It lacks nothing. But it says many of us have been baptized, immersed into Christ. What I want us to see is that the word baptism is used multiple times. We're baptized into Moses. We're ba- it's water baptism. It's, it's the reality of the word that is used repeatedly within the scripture that tells us that this is what we are immersed in. So we shouldn't be shocked by the word, no matter when we see it, we realize that we have been immersed into the life of Christ. Now, okay, where does this get its origin? Adam was both male and female. We read it, we understand that if, if those things female were taken out of him, which the Bible proclaims, they had to be in him. So when it says that God made male and female, it says in Genesis chapter 5, and he called them, male and female, he called them Adam. So he took, he took those things female out. So where did she find her origin? Where did she originate? In him. So where does the bride now find our origin? In him. That's why when we read in the New Testament, we read in these passages like Galatians, that it never tells us to do anything for God. There's never a time it gives us instruction that we're supposed to do anything for him. If you find the phrase, it's in there about nine times, and none of them say this is something we're supposed to do for him. Every time, it tells us of the positional relationship that we have with God that says, I'm good, not because I was taught to be good, I'm good because it came out of the origin, it came out of him. As a Christian, as a church, we find our origin in the open side of Jesus Christ from which the blood and water came. The same place, the open side was symbolically, we're telling, where does the bride come from? Where do those attributes come from? They came straight out of him. So my goodness is evidence of him. My mercy is evidence of him. My passion is an evidence of him. Everything points in one direction, is that I got it. According to this passage, because I was immersed in him. In him, over and over, 150 to 170 times, that phrase is found in the New Testament, telling us of this positional relationship, of who we are in relationship to who he is. Over and over, we're told, and it puts us in this reality of being heirs. God told Abraham, I'm going to do something through you and by you that's going to be staggering to the world. We're heirs of that staggering move of God. 
We're heirs of that splendor. We're heirs of the magnificence of the plan put in motion that was born in the heart of God long before we ever began to know or have it recorded. Joel 2.28, I'm going to go back there for just a second because we get to actually, I think, watch this unfold. Joel 2.28 says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. So he's making an announcement to Joel through the prophet. Joel, there's a day coming when I'm going to pour my spirit out in abundance on all men. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. Now I know that there are many who believe that that day is still coming. I believe that day has already come and continues. When we go to Acts chapter 2, if you'd go with me there, beginning with verse 17. And it shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So he's, just, he's quoting straight from Joel. And on my servants and upon my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. What happened at Pentecost? It had the Spirit poured out on all men. Now we say, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Because not all men display the reality of the Holy Spirit. So how could it have been poured out on all men? Even within the church, there's so little evidence of the Holy Spirit. This pouring out of the Holy Spirit, I personally believe, and I give you great grounds to disagree. But in that moment, the significance of what God says is I'm going to pour it and I'm going to make it available to anyone and to everyone. I'm going to pour it out in such abundance that anybody who says yes will will receive the reality of the Holy Spirit in their life. But God is too much a gentleman, too kind in his reality, complete in the thought of free will. He will not force it. It still has to be taken. Has it been poured out? I believe it has. I don't believe anybody today who would cry and say to the Holy Spirit, I want to be filled with you, that there would not be a filling in that moment. Because I do believe God's abundance has already been poured out, but he's too much a gentleman to force it on you. There's still the reality of what has to happen next. Go to Acts 2.37. There's a lot, and I'm leaving out in that passage, but for the sake of time, because I want to get to the point I, I really need to make. This is all introduction, so I say that for your encouragement. Acts 2.37, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Notice this connection. It's not maybe... If there is the reality of Jesus, there is the offering of the Holy Spirit. He has never, at the point of salvation, withheld it from anyone. So again, we find ourselves with the question that doesn't completely resolve. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children, to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And then I want us to just, in this scripture, to go to Acts chapter 10. And look at the four verses there. While Peter 
verse 44, Acts 10, 44, while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all of them which heard the word, and they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God, then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water? For these should not be baptized which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we. I want us to just at least be able to acknowledge at this point in the study tonight that the reality of the Holy Spirit has been offered to everyone. If you're sitting here tonight and you're saved, you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you know what he, by the blood, by the sacrifice, by the gift he gave, that your sin is covered. Then also know that there's about 30 invisible things that happen in that very instant. There's about 30 invisible things that God did in the transaction when he saved you. About 30 invisible things held within the scripture of what God did on your behalf. One was to, you know, you, now you become a joint heir. A joint heir is a little different than becoming an heir because an heir says, I get what I come into me. A joint heir says, if, like if, if Shorty and I owned a piece of property together and we were joint heirs, it had been willed to the two of us, that means that we have to be in agreement about everything that happens on that land. And God says, he's made us joint heirs. That we matter in this to him that much. There's tremendous significance in what he's done in those invisible things. And one of those invisible things is that he gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit. We saw it in Jesus when he came up out of the water. He was adopted by his father when his father said, this is my beloved son. His public adoption in that moment. For a father of eternity to say to, this, to the world, that's my son. Remove all question, remove all doubt, that's my son. So he was publicly adopted by his own father. The Holy Spirit descended on him as a dove, so we know he received the Holy Spirit in that moment, and it says in John chapter 1, and it remained, and it says, and all of heaven was opened unto him, so he now ministers under an open heaven. We know that's what happened to Jesus. Why would we think that less would happen to us? Why would we think that God giving Jesus so that we could understand what the interaction between humanity and God was supposed to look like, that God would then change and say, but not this part. No, this part. We're adopted as sons. That's what creates the reality of who we are. We're given the Holy Spirit, and we minister under an open heaven. But here's the question. Then why, as a Christian, do I not have the reality of the Holy Spirit like I see other people have. Why this disconnect? Why as a Christian, for me, did I become a Christian at eight years old and not receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit until I was about 50? That doesn't make sense. If he gave it to me, then why did I at eight years old not begin to function under the reality of the Holy Spirit? Why did it take all those years for me to, to, to come to that reality? Let's go to Acts chapter 8. I want to show you this, and then I'll, I'll give you the best illustration I can give you. Acts chapter 8, verse 12. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. We're kind of accepting by that phrase that they have heard of Jesus, they understand Jesus, 
They were baptized because of their faith, and I guess formally we would say they're now Christians. They put their faith and trust in him. They've been baptized in that reality as an expression of that faith and trust and that belief. And so at least in our mind, we would say they're believers, they're Christians. Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. I don't know how many days, I don't know how many hours, but I can say with some clarity and some distinction, there was a separation between when they understood Jesus and had been baptized into Jesus and when the Holy Spirit had been poured out on them. Again, I don't know how long the separation was, but it appears that there was a separation. Why? The best illustration I can give you. We have to go back to Exodus. We have to go back to to that story. The children of Israel had been in bondage for 400 years, and they they were in bondage, though they hadn't done nothing wrong. They hadn't shown resistance, treason, rebellion. They were put into slavery because the Pharaoh feared them, because everything they did prospered. And he was afraid that they would rise up and overthrow him and them. So they, they made Israel slaves. And they had been slaves for 400 years, and that's all they had known. They knew the brokenness of slavery. They knew the heaviness, the burden of it, the task of it. They knew slavery. But God provided a way, and it became very apparent. And in in, when you begin to, to look at the picture of, of how God spoke, how they would be delivered, what would be the sign of their, of, of their departure, how he made them ready, everything. The blood of the lamb on the door, all of those things, powerfully indicative of what was going to ultimately set us free, to telling us the story, to giving us the powerful reality of what was about to happen. That was a lamb, but that, that lamb became a person. That person's name became Jesus. And Jesus became a person that we knew and understood in the fulfillment of the lamb as we saw it played out on the cross. The sacrifice lamb. But we're, we're here in this story. And he takes them through the Red Sea. I love the symbolism of the Bible. I love the symbolism, truth of it, the facts of it, that they were true, that this really happened. But it, it had, there's always, a, there, in the Old Testament, there's a story that goes with the story. The fact that he took them through the Red Sea, took them from the bondage that they knew to the freedom that they first had. Took them out of Egypt, and, and yes, they were in the wilderness, but they were free. For the first time in 400 years, they didn't wake up under the heavy harshness, the bondage of the taskmaster. They were free, passing through the Red Sea. We're free because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Sets us free. No longer under the curse of sin, no longer under the heaviness of sin, the blood of Jesus covers our sin. It was an 11-day journey from where they crossed the Red Sea to Canaan, where they were going. 11 days. But why wouldn't he give them the fulfillment of the promise in that same moment? Why the separation? They didn't know how to do it. They weren't ready. So he planned 
perfectly planned, an 18-month journey down, that, down the Sinai Peninsula so that they would come up to the point of, of understanding how at Kadesh Barnea they were going to go in and take the land. He did it because he understood that though they were free, they weren't yet ready to receive the fullness of what he had in store for them. I believe that's very much the same story. Was Canaan there? Was it given? Was it promised? Was the assurance of it real? Yes, it was, and because he gave it. I believe he gives us the reality of the Holy Spirit. I believe that very much in that similarity, the, the promises of what God has in store for us are as real to, for us as it was to them. But I don't think everybody who's saved is ready to step in and fully receive what the Holy Spirit and the fulfillment of it would look like. Now, I do believe that for most of us, we waited a long time, and it took much longer than 18 months. It took them longer than 18 months, too, by the way. It took them 40 years. But the reality for you and I is that it's accessible. So when we come to these stories like Peter, you know, in, in Cornelius' home, it says they, they were baptized, and all of them received the Holy Spirit in that moment. Why did they do that? Why in that moment was it instantaneous? It's found in the context of the story because Cornelius had already been pursuing God with all his heart. This wasn't new to him. It wasn't introduced to him. God, Cornelius had been in a full pursuit of God and the truth of God, the reality of God, the, even pursuing the reality of Jesus Christ, even though he, he was who he was. And so he, he and his family were ready to receive that which God could immediately and freely give. He will do the same thing with us. But it took me a long time to ever be ready and be able to understand what it meant to wake up each day and say, Lord, you've set before me a life I cannot live. You told me I couldn't save myself. I believe that. I also believe that the life that you set before me is a life of such great mystery that I can't live it without you. So God, I ask you today, this morning, to fill me with your spirit so that the reality of this life looks exactly like you and doesn't look like me. I ask to be filled with the person, the person who saved me, introduced me, and said, I'm going away, but I'm going to send someone. Not some mystery. I'm going to send someone. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send the Holy Ghost. So that every day you can be filled with his presence. And the, and the life that we now live is an, is an evidence of who God is and not us. Why does the world hate Christianity? Because we've tried so long to be good without the one who, who is good himself. Why? Because we try to be love. And we leave out the one who is love himself. We try to be kind, we try to be forgiving, we try to be helpful, and we leave out the one whose name is help, whose mercy and kindness and goodness. So the picture in Egypt is full and robust because even when they came to the point again, the second time, that next generation, they had to confess before the Father, we can't do it. And he says, yeah, I, I know you can, and I never said you could. But if you'll trust the reality of me, then I will go before you. It, every, every victory will be because of me. Every, every step you take will be because of me. Every defeated enemy will be because of me. Everything will be an evidence of me. What do you think he wants from us today in the reality of our relationship with the Holy Spirit so that every day our life is the evidence of him? Every victory, every testimony, every witness, you know, talk to Sherry. Let her tell you about, about, about Lynn's passing and what God has done in her. She asked me this morning, she said, do you think of that moment in the hospitals when the Holy Spirit came upon me? And I said, Sherry, there is no doubt. You cannot describe what's happened since without the reality of the Holy Spirit having come powerfully upon you in that moment. 
So most of us find ourselves in this odd position. Saved, yes, but having never, just as we did when we asked God to save us through the power of Jesus Christ, the reality of his blood, most of us have never come to the place to say to the Father, fill me, fill me, top to bottom, with the Holy Spirit. Most of us, there's an element of wanting that, there's also this element of concern, because I'm, I don't know the weirdness that the Holy Spirit's going to create if I do that. He doesn't ever behave very well. Can't take him anywhere, because you just don't know what he's going to do. He talks to people when you don't want to talk to people. He, he touches when you don't really plan on touches. You know, give, he gives when you're not really planning on giving. He does all these strange things, but there's a place in us. If we'll be serious before the Lord, that mystery, what our life will look like when the Holy Spirit is full and free and we let him loose to do in us, through us, by us, those things that only he can do, I guarantee it will be the greatest adventure you've ever lived. The greatest mystery will begin to unfold and you will not know how it happens, but you will absolutely know who did it. There won't be any question. So God had a plan to release them in one moment and allow them to receive something greater in another. That shouldn't surprise us. If it happened then, it shouldn't surprise us that it happens now. So here's how I see it. When we're saved, accepting Jesus as our Savior, God gives us in full the reality of the Holy Spirit, and he does it instantly. I don't believe he withholds it from anyone. However, that does not mean that we are ready to receive it. And God took 18 months to train them, to show them his magnificence so that they would trust and step into the fullness when that moment came. And I believe God does the same thing now. I believe he shows us his magnificence so that we'll be ready to say to the Holy Spirit, fill me. He gave it to the people, but only those who receive the gift, only those who will Say before the, before the Father, God, I don't know what all you have for me, but this I do know. Whatever it is, I want it all. You know, Kendall's testimony, he, he shared with him in here, you know, with you several times. When that hit him, he, he walked into the bedroom, and Lindsay said he hit the floor like a rock. Couldn't get up. Pressed, face pressed into the carpet. Why? Because he had just prayed with Bridger out in the living room. He said, God, I want you to fill this place, every corner of it, including me, and I don't care what it looks like. I don't fear anything. I want it all. Walked into the bedroom, flat on his face. Couldn't get up. I don't know what it looked like for you. I, you know, I don't know what that moment was like for you. Jay has testified what it was like for him in that desperate moment when he was in Portland, crying out before the Lord. He shared that. Some of you others have shared what that moment was like for you when the Holy Spirit in the fullness, you know, I love the story of, you know, that David shared with us at dinner in February, that he's in this men's meeting in Fort Worth, and they're praying, and he's kind of whispered to somebody, says, you know, I don't really know much about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they were all praying. So 25 men on their faces before the Lord praying. And he, he whispers this to this guy, and the guy hollers across the room, doesn't worry about disturbing anybody, tells the pastor, says, we got one over here that doesn't know much about the Holy Spirit. And the pastor walks over and says, he will tonight. And David said, my mind was saying, well, there's a door over here and there's a door over here. And if I were to hurry, I can get out of here. And that voice in his head was saying, get out, get out, get out, get out. He says, no, what, whatever this is about, I want it tonight. And he said, the, the men told him, said, I thought you were going to leave the ground because he said, he said, I was looking up at the sky and he said, I was, you know, just before the Lord said, I could see that fire coming. He said, I was on my toes, desperately trying to get myself as close to that flame as possible. He said, I could see the fire coming. Is it any great mystery then that he's been able to lead 
you know, Christian ministries in Africa this 28 or 29 years under the power of the Holy Spirit, and we see the magnificence of it. What prepared him for that moment? Holy Spirit. What would that life have been like absent the Holy Spirit? Man, what a miserable 28 years. With it, what a glorious 28 years. How many lives, how many children, how many people's lives saved, touched, healed, salvations come because of his, his willingness to say in that moment when he wanted to run, say, no, whatever this is about, I want it tonight. This is it. And to stand there and watch this fire come. Paul spoke of it about himself. I know where I was. I know that moment. It's a decision. You made a decision to accept Jesus. You make a decision to step into that reality of a life in the Spirit. We need to remove some of the mystery around it and know what it's about. Hopefully that helps a little bit tonight. The mystery comes after you say yes and the filling has come. That's when the great mystery begins. How to be filled is no great mystery. What does God ask us to do in everything regarding him? Ask. And if you're going to ask, be ready to receive. That's the way you were saved. That's the way you're filled. Ask him. He'd gladly do it. He'll give you an abundance. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for this. Lord, there's just so much here. It's like a topic that just could go on forever, and and everything you say would expose new truth. And it would just go on and go on and go on. Lord, I don't think we, any of us should be surprised because any time we describe, try to describe the glory and the splendor of what the Holy Spirit is designed to do and the, and the glory that he's designed to bring into our lives, into the life of your church, we should not be astonished that this is a topic that we can't completely get our hands or our heart or our minds around. But we do thank you, Lord, for the clarity that you bring and the assurance that you give us. And I pray, Lord, for anyone here who has been hesitant for any reason, hesitant because of uncertainty or fear or doubt or whatever it might be, that, they, that tonight, that that would yield to the yes in our, that you've placed in us. And our prayer would be, Lord, I want to be filled with your presence and then fully receive that which you're ready and so abundantly ready to give us. We speak it, Lord, over this body tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.